back to another episode of Imposter. Today, we kind of have a blast from the past. A, a coworker, an old coworker that we haven't seen for about a year now or a little over a year, maybe a year and a half. And I'm so excited to see her face. I have such a vivid memory of us walking around a park outside around our office and you giving me advice for asking for a raise. And so I'm so excited for you to give that kind of advice to everyone. And you are just such a fierce, special, just woman in tech that I admire so much, Natalie. So I'm so glad you're here. Oh, thank you. So good to see you too. We're so excited to have you. So just so our listeners know, Natalie is a current software engineer at Apple. She graduated from MIT. And what, because, what? Right. And because that is not enough on her stellar resume already, she also designs and creates absolutely beautiful jewelry and is very into metalworking, which is super cool. And most important highlight, she used to work with us, like Taylor said. And we've always just really admired her ability to speak up and to advocate for herself, especially when we were first navigating the world of asking for a raise or asking for promotions. So I think just to kick us off and dive a little bit more into your background, Natalie, can you just fill us in on how you first got interested in programming and sort of your education and career path up to this point? Yeah, sure. So I think it took me a while to realize that my exposure to software engineering started where it started, but I've always had a very rich interest in science and engineering and math. I have very nurturing teachers throughout middle school and high school, and also some that were not as supportive, but I think it was really the supportive ones that encouraged me to apply to technical schools when I was looking at college. And it wasn't until maybe my junior year of college, so my third year of college, where I decided that I wanted to pursue uh, computer science and software engineering. I actually went in thinking I would do chemistry or material science, uh, which is what I minored in and spent the first three years of college doing. It was during some of my research in material science where I realized that what I was doing could be improved. A lot of the like data analysis that I was doing could be improved and I could gain a lot more insight if I had some knowledge of being able to automate the manipulation of the data that I was working with. And so my partner at the time actually suggested that I take an algorithms class, which was kind of unheard of. I think a lot of people are very intimidated by algorithms. It can be very intimidating. And I'm not quite sure why, actually. I mean, I myself am intimidated by algorithmic interviews and stuff like that. But when I did take the class, it became, it came very naturally to me, even without having like a formal software coding class. And when I did start taking like the intro to software classes, I realized, oh, I've been doing this stuff since I was 12. Like I've been like making website skins on Neopets And that was my first exposure to HTML and and JavaScript and just like hacking away at that stuff on the computer in the like one or two hours that I was able to spend on the computer, on the shared family computer, right? I mean, MIT is very much known for its software engineering. Like many of the undergraduates who enroll will take a software engineering class in like their first or second year. But it took me a while to get around to doing it. Very intimidated by the idea of being in a software class. I definitely thought it was kind of a thing that was reserved for people who looked a certain way or acted a certain way. 
I'm really glad that I ended up surrounding myself with maybe like kind of people who were different and thought differently and were very encouraging of me to try out new things. And one of those new things was software engineering class. So that sounds super intimidating to me, what you just described, which is you're at a college that's really well known for software engineering. And then three years in with no experience, you just decide to start a class. Like I would be like, it's been three years. I missed the boat. Like I'm not restarting. Everyone's so ahead of me. So how did, how did you do that? And like, how did it end up working out? Oh, it was so stressful. It was really stressful to actually taking the classes were fine because, you know, I could very easily like drop the classes if I didn't like them. And it was really just like time for those first two classes. But it was when I decided to switch majors, like the third year, second semester of college that I was just like, I remember, I remember the stress. I was sitting in like my dorm living room. I was standing in my dorm living room, like hanging out with my friends and just like pacing back and forth. Like, should I do this? Like, I I thought a lot about my future and what I wanted to get out of it. Things that I cared about, kind of prioritizing those things, like what I wanted and what my desires were and what I thought and knew would be best for me really made the difference. You know, on the other hand, all the doubts were kind of like, would it look bad if I were to take an extra semester or two in college? Like, you know, what would other people think kind of a thing? Would I be seen as someone who is a quitter um, because I quit material science? And so I think it was kind of thinking about it in that way, like, who am I doing this for? That really got me to go ahead first and just prioritize ultimately the person that was going to be putting in all of this work to get this degree anyway, you know. Did you take your first class junior year or you that was just when you decided to That was when switch. I decided to switch. Um yeah, so I took the two I took an algorithms class and I took like an intro to python class that first semester and then I think after that semester is when I kind of needed to make the decision if I was going to keep on doing this. And it felt like for the rest of my life, like it felt like a really big decision. I mean, I could go back and, or like, I mean, I have in some way, I like continued to make jewelry and work with metal and a very like artistic capacity, not necessarily material science research and engineering. But yeah, at that point, it it very much was, is this something that I'm going to commit to? And do I believe in myself to build a future out of this and a career? So hard to know at that age. Yeah. (laughs) But also the point that you made where you basically came to the realization that the only thing really, really that was holding you back was sort of the fear of what other people might think and and the labels that they might attribute to you and accepting that and at the same time putting yourself first and realizing that what you actually want to get out of it and what you envision for yourself is worlds more important than any like opinion that someone might have anyway and that to me translates beautifully is like a real visceral acceptance of self-advocacy even though you're really just like advocating yourself to yourself And I'm wondering how that then sort of translated into post-college when you're working and potentially when you found yourself in maybe a similar situation where there was something that you wanted for yourself and you went for it and had to set aside any sort of like fears of what other people might think, you know, like what your manager, what your coworkers might think. 
Yeah, I mean, the whole like self-advocacy for yourself, I think, is where it all starts. For me, at least, me being my own worst critic is, is very is a very relevant theme. And I think the most powerful thing that I can do for myself a lot of the times is believe in myself and also understand when I'm uncomfortable, understand what about the situation is not sitting right with me or is not okay, or I'm not comfortable with. And I think that's huge, like being able to, you know, have that presence and have that assertiveness of presence to be able to know and to to share with others even when something feels not right. Also to enjoy when things are and to appreciate when things are. A lot of that like personal self-advocacy in my day-to-day life and my personal life and my family life translates very directly to my work life. And it's not always just about self-advocacy for when it comes to work or projects or, you know, compensation, even though those things are very, very important. It's also kind of like self-advocacy in the face of microaggressions towards uh, oneself or, you know, a coworker or just like conditions that are unsafe in the workplace. And I think that it's, it's really important for everyone to realize that like, it is almost like a responsibility, our own responsibility to advocate for what we feel is is right, stand up for people who may be less privileged and ha- have less confidence in, in certain situations. And I that directly translates to advocacy for oneself. And it might even make situations where there's like the doubt of maybe I'm being a little bit too selfish in this context by asking for too much. It's all the same when you think about like, am I advocating for what I feel is is right or what's comfortable for me or what's going to be safe in the workplace for others? Am I listening to what's going on and am I using my position and privilege and you know ability to advocate for myself and for others? I've never thought of like, you know, asking for a raise or asking for a promotion for yourself as directly translating to kind of just a bigger, the bigger group as a whole. Like if we don't, as women come to the table and say, we deserve more, if people aren't, if women aren't doing that, then we all suffer. Right. But like the more of us do it, the more well-received that is. But if it's like one person and there's no backup, then it's the status quo remains. I don't know if that's what you're, you were getting at, but I've, it's interesting to think of that, like kind of a selfish act seems like on the surface as more of a kind of a larger context of setting the precedent for like women deserve more. Sometimes it it really can be tricky. I've been in situations where I've decided not to negotiate because I am more interested in other aspects of the job and kind of like the balance of of the team. And I try to think about what negotiating aggressively might mean for the, for the rest of the team or what it might mean for others. And for example, I don't know, maybe you could identify a process in your interview while you're negotiating that you felt was uncomfortable or, you know, you would like to be fixed for other people who then get interviewed. And I think that that you'd end up being in a, as, as someone who's being invited to join the team, like you'd be in a very powerful position to change the interview process as someone who has just recently gone through it. And yeah, I do see negotiation as something that is more than just like salary. And I, I think it, it's the start of building a relationship, especially at this phase. I think like a lot of 
or just people, I guess, can be uncomfortable with, with the idea of negotiating because it does feel selfish. Yeah. Like you said, having that like sense of self-worth and just knowing we're worth a lot and we deserve a lot. I want to talk more about your transition from headspace into the unknown because you, you left and you did this incredibly brave and scary thing where you didn't have the job at Apple yet. You were thinking of applying to grad school. I think also you were just sort of taking your time for yourself and open to opportunities because that's something that I, I think sometimes fantasize about a little bit, but I don't ever see myself getting there. And then I have a Slack message to answer and like snap out of it. But I want to hear about what your process was from being, you know, like a full-time engineer at Headspace to being ready to take this step and like take this time for yourself. Oh yeah. I think when I knew it was time to leave, it was very clear. So I spent some time thinking about it, like what would make me happy? Like what is going to be fulfilling? What am I going to like apply myself towards? I had this idea that I really wanted to go and do, I, I think it, it was largely informed by what I was doing at the time. So my next goal was what is the next obvious progression that I'm going to, that's going to give me energy because right now, like everything I'm doing is kind of just like taking away my energy. And, and it was, it was hard because a lot of the people who I felt were my friends had left at this time. So I, I thought, I think like being able to formulate this idea of, what is going to give me energy to come to work? What might potentially be beneficial for my employer as well at the same time? Kind of helped me formulate and ask. Before I decided to leave Headspace, I had actually been working on a project that was very interesting. It was around recommendation systems based on emotion. I had spent maybe like three to six months on this project. At some point in time, um, that project had kind of like tapered off and I was moved to a different project. But it was something I still wanted to invest time and energy in and it's something I was really passionate about. But that's when I started getting interested in, in doing research again around this. And it didn't seem like there were any avenues at Headspace to be committing like that research work um, and development work uh, just because the projects they kind of like tapered out. So I, I had considered, you know, maybe going to school at the same time and working at Headspace. And I remember having this discussion with some of my managers at the time, but it didn't really pan out. So I, I still wanted to keep on this track. So I thought about, okay, what if I just went full time into into research for a little bit. And so I started looking at PhD programs and I, I gathered like a list of places that I would be interested in. And then this was kind of approaching the fall time of that year and applications were due in November, December time. And I wanted to commit more time to doing the research before actually proposing like an application, um, things like that. And so at this point in time, I, I had asked to take time off, kind of a sabbatical, four to eight weeks. I think was the ask. I don't really remember the details. But at this time, I was also prepared to not be at Headspace anymore. And so I made the ask and the negotiations ended up turning out in the negative, but I was still very happy with the result. I feel like I had done everything that I could to make, you know, like the relationship work. <laughs> and I was able to like walk away and, you know, like be happy with, the options that I had available to me. And a lot of the reason why was because I had been saving an emergency fund. So a lot of people will say like three to six months of the money that you, you're spending um, or whatever. So I had 
a really good cushion of that to hang out on for a little bit while I spent time exploring. I mean, it was scary to not have like any stable source of income. I definitely kind of like talked with consulting firms, um, like engineering consulting for firms, see if like there's any like quick jobs I could pick up for money. But yeah, that can be kind of exhausting. But yeah, fortunately, I knew when I needed to stop pursuing grad school and kind of switch over to think about other goals that could potentially lead me to a place where I could continue learning because that was really the point of it for me. It was while this research interest was very interesting to me, an even bigger motivator was a desire to continue learning and challenging myself with new and different opportunities. I was lucky to come across something that was was very good. When I was unemployed, I spent a lot of time on lead code doing algorithms, which I just, you know, I thought they they really paid off in the interview. I'm not a big fan of of algorithmic interviews, but I do think that they provide a very good like place for which interviews can be based off of. That makes sense. It's a good starting point, a shared language to go further into, I think, what the point of interviews are, which is assessing if I could communicate with a person and work with them and like talk about problems that are very high technical level. So yeah, it was nice to have the time and flexibility to do that and to practice interviewing and stuff. I don't know, it was, it was fun to try something new. I had never applied to PhD programs before. Um, I was I interviewed with some of the professors and to be honest, I I knew it was going to be a very huge change in everything. <laughs> mode of working and commitment and dedication to an area of 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 work it was i think it was very a very good lesson and thing i would consider revisiting but yeah you know there's a time time for everything and right now it's not the time for (laughs) doing a phd i guess i want to circle back because you said something really interesting about basically recognizing microaggressions in yourself and also recognizing them and calling them out in in other people. And it was, it's something I've never thought about, but it makes so much sense. You know, if I don't have the courage to call myself out for negative self-talk or anything that I say to myself that puts me down, it seems unrealistic that I'm able to really like bring that up and give other people that sort of feedback as well. So I was hoping that you maybe had any action items or tips that you could share about, you know, how we can be better giving ourselves feedback, constructive criticism when we catch microaggressions, and then also how we can translate that to giving appropriate feedback in the workplace. I think a lot of the work that I did to deal with microaggressions actually happened in a therapist's office. And I think it, it's like not easy work because it's hard to identify and communicate why microaggressions are so toxic because it's so subtle. It's so subtle. And I think it really requires like a, a super strong spine to be able to say like, no, that's not cool. Like, I don't like that. Like, (laughs) instead of kind of just like internalizing it and brushing it off and being like getting down by it, because something that's so normal, or, you know, something that is expected, and that we should put up with, 
I think it's super common actually in Asian American culture to assimilate and not say not say anything that will offend the other person after the after you've been offended kind of a thing. I think there are similar themes in many cultures and like different genders of people and like the most like audacious thing that a person can do is like exist as themselves. I think especially in in queer and trans communities this is this is very true existing and being outspoken about what someone is doing to harm you and your safety and your identity and your existence is it can be a very strong act of you know resistance and I think so I was saying a lot of this work I I did in therapy and a lot of it started with kind of just like basic affirmations and this may not be your thing it's definitely not my thing and it's very uncomfortable for me to do but when I was not feeling very good about myself um, it was something that I started that my therapist suggested I do like wake up in the morning and like tell my myself what I need to hear like for example that I am strong and capable and confident you look at yourself in the mirror and you say these things three times without flinching and it's so uncomfortable but it honestly I think it really works it works it combats against the tendency people might have to like hide and close themselves off because you know all of their lives they've been told you can't appear as you are this is not the right way to behave that was a big starting point for me to be able to say in a in a in a respectful way in a way that will be re- well received i am uncomfortable with this being able to say that and even when i'm kind of like on the verge of tears and my voice is quivering being able to stand up to someone and say you know i'm not comfortable with this i would appreciate if you could not do this next time or i feel harmed or threatened or whatever it is that needs to be addressed either with a very solemn or serious attitude or with some humor if you know that might be more well received but also it's really not anyone's responsibility to make the other person comfortable but i think it is very important if we want what we are trying to get across to come across then it is very important to understand what the other person will respect and want to hear or you know sometimes you just walk away from the situation if if you know things don't work and sometimes that is the reality of the situation and that's okay too have you ever gotten pushback when saying i'm uncomfortable with this i don't feel safe where the quote unquote offending party is like oh it's just a joke you know like lighten up kind of brushing it off and in doing so also yeah i think this is very common actually in in my personal relationships I, I think because like certain relationships say are more familial, I don't necessarily count, encounter this in the workplace that often, but I know I know it's not uncommon, right? I think I kind of have have the fortunate situation of, well, okay, I won't even say that's true because it's not. I have had, <laughs> I've had really bad experiences with this where I've totally just been like, no, that didn't happen. Or like, why do you feel unsafe? Like you shouldn't feel unsafe. Well, I didn't, I didn't say I, I don't feel unsafe. I, I am unsafe. Like I don't, I'm not safe in this situation. Like, <laughs> I think that is a very helpful like approach to take. If, if someone says, why do you, why are you feeling this way? Or like, you shouldn't feel this way, like negating your feelings. And it's totally valid to be confused by what this other person is saying, because they're not experiencing what you're experiencing. 
And I think it's also like a form of self-preservation to recognize that. Yeah, the whole gaslighting thing is really tricky. It's really tough. Especially when other people are like, oh, that he's so nice. Like, he, he doesn't mean that. He would never say that. If Oh my gosh, if he knew that you felt that way, oh my gosh, he would be so upset. And you're like, well, but he still did it. So uh, it doesn't matter if that's not what he meant. Like, he needs to be educated. Right. I think it's kind of almost a show of lack of responsibility, right? And someone's not going to take ownership of what they said, and they're not going to own the consequences of what they did. I I think it's important to recognize those situations. And for me, like, space is a relationship too. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you you all watched the, I mean, you probably watched the Oprah interview yes. with Megan and yes. Harry, where Harry describes his relationship with his brother as space. It's yes. space right now. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Like you're not, you're not necessarily canceling that person, even though it's also like totally fine. <laughs> like space is a relationship, you know, like. I like that. Cause I've definitely, yeah. you know, worked with some people sometimes where I'm like, Oh, I just don't want to work with them. They make me uncomfortable or whatever. And it's totally fine to be like, okay, it's better to reframe it. Like I'm going to give some space to that. And then I can revisit it when I feel ready rather than like, okay, I'm writing that person off. I like what you said about self-affirmations, giving you the confidence to speak your mind, but also what came to mind for me was like giving self-affirmations to yourself to kind of combat imposter syndrome too. Cause it's like imposter syndrome kind of is bred out of those microaggressions over and over telling you, you can't do the thing that you know you're capable of. And I think like the affirmations can help counteract that. And we haven't really talked about imposter syndrome with you, but you know, since that's the theme of the podcast, um, just wondering like, you know, aside from microaggressions, how has your experience been with imposter syndrome? I mean, I mean, now you literally work at Apple, like arguably one of the the biggest, like most coveted places to work. So wondering if that solves it all. Like, have you just <laughs> it, you know? <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a really important step to do before that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think like self-affirmations and like self-advocacy is all kind of wrapped up in self-love. It's a really important first step. To be honest, I don't know if I would have even applied to Apple if if I didn't have some level of confidence in my ability. Um, I don't know if I would have dedicated the time to go hard on algorithms if I didn't think that I would get somewhere with, you know, with the process. But don't get me wrong, I was definitely surprised like at every step of the way when they gave me calls. And gave me the offer. But yeah, I think working on imposter syndrome is really a work in progress. I think for me, the next level of like feeling like an, an imposter is kind of developing a certain level of technical expertise in like really esoteric fields of software design and engineering, <laughs> which I'm super stoked about. I love not being the smartest person in the room. Like, I think there's a, there's a big problem if, if you know everything and you're the smartest person in the room, because then you have nothing to learn. And I think that feeling of imposter syndrome can kind of, if we think about it in a different way, it can kind of become very empowering instead of thinking about it as like, oh, I'm not good enough to be in this position. You can think about it like, ha, 
I tricked them <laughs> into letting me in and now I can like learn all this stuff from them. <laughs> I mean, that's how I feel at every job. I'm like, I'm getting a, I'm getting a full on education from these people, like these smart people that went to college for this, that are just teaching me and it's for free. I'm getting paid for it. It's crazy. It's crazy. I like that. I like that outlook on it. (laughs) And it's helpful to remember that like everyone starts from somewhere. So at some point in time, you know, definitely very soon there will be people who were us three or four years ago starting at Headspace very fresh and needing or wanting being there because they tricked us and (laughs) (laughs) they have a lot to learn from us. So yeah. Well, on that note, we do something called our imposter versus all-star moment of the week. So it's like one time you felt like a full-on imposter and then one time you felt like awesome, like not an imposter at all, just the complete opposite of that. I can start and hopefully this will give you some ideas. My all-star moment, my all-star moments for the past two weeks have been more tied to my um I work on this like fitness app that uses uh, AR and like computer vision to like see where you are and you do do a workout. It's not my project. It's like a project that I am working on. I feel like I'm getting a lot of all-star moments from that because I'm doing stuff that I've re- I've never touched before. So then when I do it, I have, I like really have something to show for it. And it's much more energizing than sometimes my day-to-day work. That's like a little more kind of the same all the time. Um, and this, I'm working with different technologies. Like last week I did, uh, I started like connecting the app with the Apple watch. You could like fast forward the, the exercises or go back to go to a previous exercise. And I had never set up like an Apple watch project on my own, barely touched the Apple watch. So it was just cool to work on something that, I mean, I use my Apple watch for workouts. So it was cool to like start to build something that I could potentially use. And something that the the guy who gave me the assignment, like, didn't even know how it worked. He was like, I'm not sure how to do this, but like, see if you can get something to happen. So it's always great when you just feel like, oh, here, I have something to show for it. And like, you don't even know how to do this. So I felt good about myself there. Imposter moment um, was definitely the past few days. We're about to launch something and we're testing out every single permutation of the way that we're going to roll it out. And it's really confusing. And my least favorite kind of technical problem, which is just like covering all your bases and making sure that a third party, you know, AB test platform works. And I'm just, I just have no interest in it. And whenever my teammates start talking about it, I'm like, I just check out, not interested. I don't really know what's going on and I don't care to (laughs) like, do all eight of us really need to know exactly what's going on? As long as one person's got it. You know, when you're in a conversation, I'm like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. That's it's a little impostery, but also I don't care to know, so I don't feel bad about it. But Monica, do you have any? My imposter moment this week was I got a new computer sent to me for work, and I always underestimate the complexities and how long it's going to take for me to set everything up, set my dev environment back up what I need still from my old computer, figuring out things like GitHub authentication. And it's not like it ended up really taking me that long. It's just those sort of moments where you're just like staring at your terminal and like, why isn't that like you keep getting errors and you feel like you'll never get out of that space. But Mm -hmm. I did coming to you live from my new computer. So at least I got Zoom working. 
And my all-star moment is that I got promoted Ooh, last week. So. Congrats. Thank you. Thank Very you. Um, so yeah, so still still riding the high of that. Nice. And you weren't and you weren't expecting it. Like um you it's it's so great when your work is just recognized and you don't have to like fight for it. It's mm. just so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I knew that I had I knew that I had been nominated, but then I hadn't really heard anything, nor had I asked because I felt like you know no news is no news. But it was yeah, it was a a fun little surprise in in my one on one last week. So yay yay thank, thank you. you thank you thank you Natalie do you have I need to share uh, yeah they're they're all in the span of this week maybe more smaller moments oh, okay so my imposter moment this week is I'm basically in a co-working space right now but not really <laughs> I was surrounded by a bunch of other engineers and I haven't been in an engineering workspace in a really long time and a lot of these guys I went to school with actually and they're really smart and it's kind of bringing me back to these moments at MIT tense imposter syndrome. Like this was before I even knew what it was. And so it's not like that traumatic, but <laughs> the result of it is I'm trying to compensate by acting and feeling like, Oh, I'm so busy. You know, like I, I do happen to be busy this week, but I'm like, I need to like resist that feeling of of bragging about it or something just because like this entire past pandemic, I haven't been busy. And like, there have been times where I have really enjoyed it and milked it and like also felt very antsy about it. Kind of being here brings a lot of that up for me, like feeling the need to compensate because I don't feel like I'm doing enough. So that is my imposter moment of the week. My all-star moment of the week happened today with one of my coworkers. He was reviewing a PR of mine and kind of, like made a comment about serialization and how like we should do it this way. And I totally disagreed. And the entire time I kind of felt like a bull, like ramming it, <laughs> like going at it, like very aggressive. I felt like that person that was like that very short, impatient code reviewer, you know, that's like on your PRs. And it wasn't that I wanted to feel that way, but I definitely felt that way. But I knew that like, this is the way that we were communicating to get to this solution of this problem. And we ended up getting to like an even better solution without like either of us kind of giving up unnecessarily. And I think a lot of the times, the reason I see this as an all-star moment, even though it feels kind of like weird about how aggressive I was, typically I have this tendency to be very accommodating when I talk technically and kind of just like feels like I'm I'm wasting more cycles than I need to. Whereas this time I really feel like we ended up with a, a very good result. And it felt very cooperative, even in spite of that. Yeah, I don't know if it's something that I would take as an approach to other and to other people or engineers. Um, but yeah, this was like a, a specific relationship and way of communication that really worked for us. And I think like it was kind of nice to be able to explore that with one of my team members. Wow. Thank you so much, Natalie, for, for sitting down with us and, and catching up. I mean, we miss you. We miss your beautiful face. Unfortunately, our, our podcast audience won't be able to see it. So they're lost. But, oh, I, before, before we sign off, I wanted to make sure that you were able to drop where people can find your jewelry on social media or 
internet or any other venues? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I make jewelry and I'm kind of on hiatus right now, but I do have a supply that I have been working on for the last two or three years. I'm on Instagram at Natalie Huynh Jewelry. That's my name plus jewelry. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was this was so insightful. Again, you are you are wise beyond your years. And it's funny because I think as Taylor introduced you, she said like, our old co-worker, obviously someone who we worked with in the past, but the first thing in my mind, I was like, that's so funny. Cause she's definitely like a few years younger than both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I forgot we're both from Arcadia. Oh, Arcadia yeah. makes the best soft range. That's funny. <laughs> I, I do forget that. Yes. We're both from Arcadia and we were both in the same sorority. So we're sisters <gasps> really? for life. Oh yes, we were. Oh yeah. <laughs> do you remember that conversation yeah, now? Because the day the day I started at Headspace, you were like, hi, I'm Natalie. I'm your mentor. And I saw you were in Theta. We're sisters. And I was like, whoa, this is not what I was expecting <laughs> on, my, on my first day from another, a fellow engineer to have my sorority <laughs> drop. So I was like, wow, my gosh. It made me feel just mm-hmm. right at home. Right at home. Well, thank you for having me. Well, thank this you. was super nice. I love listening to your podcast. You're so funny. All right. Well, thank you so much. I I'm definitely gonna take some of these um some of these lessons and then hold them in mind. It's it's harder to call out microaggressions when you're remote, like because you're not like face-to-face interactions. It seems like more aggressive. But I love the idea of like you know, saying those affirmations to yourself also as a way to just com- combat all of all of the shit that we go through. I'm gonna start that tomorrow morning. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Well, thank you. Bye. Bye.